put a French horn in there, which is broadly based on my own experience of leaving it on the bus a lot because I hated it so much. And I was like, <laughs> one day, one day, we're not going to get it back. <laughs> Welcome to Talking Simulator, a series of short conversations about video games with interesting people who play them. I'm Jordan Erica Weber, and in this episode, I discuss a monster's expedition through puzzling exhibitions with my guest, Philippa War. Hi, I'm Philippa War, and I wrote Monsters Expedition. A Monsters Expedition is another excellent puzzle game from Drachnik, who you may also know for Soccer Bond, A Good Snowman is Hard to Build, and Cosmic Express. But as well as challenging puzzles, this game also has narrative in the form of written exhibit plaques for a variety of more or less familiar objects scattered across the little islands of the game in a kind of museum of humanity for a society made up of monsters like the adorable player character. In this conversation, Pip tells me how she went about writing these plaques, how she drew inspiration from her own fascination with the more mundane artefacts of our history, and how on earth you make a video game funny. So how do you describe the game to people who haven't played it, if you're trying to give an idea of what it's like? So... I would always lead with the fact that it's a, an adorable puzzle game because those are some good keywords. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, more specific talk, probably largely focusing on the mechanics, to be honest, you know, the log pushing and the trying to get from islands to island and the spatial kind of investigation-ness of it all, um, which maybe sounds a bit self-deprecating, but that's the meat of the game that you need to want to enjoy to be able to access the other stuff, really. So, yeah, that's how I tend to, to cue it up in conversation. So what was your specific responsibility on the game then? So I came on... I don't quite know at what point the rest of the team would say in terms of development, but it was while the game had been underway for quite a while and they were looking for a person to to come in and bring this idea of, I believe it was a museum at the end of time for lost things was kind of where they had wobbled towards by that point. <laughs> and so, you know, not not in a bad way, just in a kind of, you know, the way that the collaborative process kind of lurches mm. back and forth and then settles on something that feels true, I guess. And so I was asked by Alan, actually, if I could send over a writing sample, if I was interested in in the project in a way that the writing sample needed to engage with that idea or, or try and figure out what I might do with that or where I would play in that space, I guess. So at what point did it move from a museum at the end of time to the specific kind of museum of human artefacts for non-human or monster <laughs> beings? So for a very long time, the question of who the player was in that world was a real sticking point. And mm. I remember, I, or I think I remember that 
it was one of these things that Adam, who was in charge of the lovely artwork, would sometimes kind of come back to with a with a bit of urgency in his voice, kind of <laughs> saying, "So, um, this main character that needs to be depicted, <laughs> um, and so the idea that." I had was to tap into the monster from A Good Snowman and things like that because they're such a lovely shape and a kind of a real wanting to explore and play in the spaces that Alan and Ben designed so beautifully that that felt like a good a good creature for that space and then with that as a vector for exploration it made the museum as a thing that is being translated through a a different lens help that make sense because otherwise who are you that is viewing this thing and why wouldn't you know the things or what would have survived or what clues would you be working from that kind of thing Right, because kind of core to the conceit of the game is that the curator who wrote these kind of plaques doesn't quite understand what the objects actually are. Mm. Was that kind of your idea that there would be that tension between what the objects actually are and what the kind of curator has understood them to be? Or did that just kind of come naturally from the process? So it cast my mind back. Uh, <laughs> I think partly it's just how I had automatically approached the assignment as Alan had presented it to me. There was this kind of sense that by the end of time, precious details would have been lost or context would have been stripped out, things like that. And so I think there was a bit more of a kind of streak of people being people, kind of that pettiness that people can have that stops them seeing bigger pictures. Or, you know, I, I think that came up a lot in in that first draft there was stuff like the collection of coins that is found down the side of a a movie theater's seating and there was a bear that had been thrown away while somebody was visiting a theme park the child had thrown it away in a fit of anger and it had to be replaced you know that kind of very small day-to-day concerns sort of aggregating I guess and one of the items that didn't make it into the game was it was a key ring like one of those mementos that you get from holidays where they'll take a photo and then they'll put it in a key ring for you and it was this thing that was being treated as a revered museum artifact but it was you know the inscription reads Magaluf 2020 with the lads (laughs) you know that kind of thing and just sort of (laughs) the small details that don't in any way feel heroic when you're in them but might at a future time be taken out of context and be presented as these monuments of a previous civilization or these like vital clues or something and they're just people being people you know is that something that you think about a lot because i know i have conversations with people where someone will say what will the people of the future think when they find this in you know a hundred thousand years <laughs> yeah and i think a lot of the formative texts of my life have been that. And I don't know whether that's because I gravitate towards them or whether they are things that I hadn't initially thought about and they've been presented in a way that then makes you sort of it impossible not to see them. So Terry Pratchett does a lot of that kind of people's myopic reactions to these great 
big events, you know, world changing things. And somebody's worried about, yes, but I left the vegetables on the stove, you know, like, yes, sure, there's a great magical being here. But you know, (laughs) what about my toast? You know, that kind of thing. Or Barbara Pym, she wrote these beautiful stories. And one of the back quotes as the heartbreaking silliness of everyday life. And that phrase has kind of stuck with me. And then living in Bath, there's also the Roman Baths Museum. And one of the things that they have is people wrote these little complaints down about each other that they would put in almost like as kind of curses wished upon other people and it's things like that person who stole my cloth you know while I left it on the side at the bath so I hope your hand falls in the bin or something you know and one of the other things is you know a famous Roman writer complaining about the noise levels at the baths and things like that (laughs) I just love 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 those moments of just the pettiness that has persisted Mm. over over time and throughout humanity I suppose I suppose it's kind of similar in a way then, looking at a certain moment in humanity from a, you know, a distance of years and looking at a certain moment in humanity from a distance of, you know, being in another species. It's actually a kind of similar idea at that level. What do you think we gain from looking at ourselves at a remove like that? I think something that it can offer is this feeling of both perspective and maybe kinship you know, across time, that there's this familiarity of personality types or of concerns and things like that, that can make you feel connected in a way that perhaps a a crown or a sword or a piece of clothing without writing or without those kinds of, you know, the smaller concerns kind of baked in, you know, like I like reading through old complaints or, you know, like even just like the notes that people have made in the margins of things that they thought were important or, you know, post-its and things. (laughs) But something that I am also interested in, although don't really get much time to think about, is my degree was art history. And part of that involves thinking about curatorial practices. And I did some work experience in a local museum. And so with conversations about colonialism and about repatriation and about sort of the role of institutions within that. It's an interesting thing to try and think what it would mean for monsters to look at these things and what it might tell them about people and also how I'm potentially encoding my own biases and, you know, replicating racism or colonialism, you know, throughout that. And that's why I'm super grateful that we had Helen Gould come on as a sensitivity reader for the game and to sort of look at that with me through that lens. When it came to choosing the objects then that went in the game... Was that up to you or were they kind of presented to you and you had to decide what to write about them? No, there were definite concerns about assets and just what the game could support and what worked in the art style and what was possible with shaders given, you know, the existing structure of the game. And so there were some things that weren't possible in terms of I had suggested maybe a set of objects that were far more like for for an island chain that was far more dark, physically dark rather mm. than, you know, mean or scary. But 
but having the objects themselves be points of light. They would be, you know, bioluminescent or they would be like light switches you could turn on or something like that. But we couldn't make that work in the mm. confines of the game and things like that. So that would govern some of what was possible. There were also assets that had already been built. So it was a case of seeing what we could do with those, what stories would like present themselves and also just what was possible in terms of the scale at which we were operating. So, you know, some of the things would have been far too small to show up on screen the Mm. way that they needed to be. And some of the things just sort of, it was just really hard to make them pop enough against the plinths and things to actually tell what they were. So, yeah, so there were a few things that were just no-goes. But broadly, I could write a thing and show it to Adam and just say, hello, (laughs) (laughs) hi, I'm very sorry about this, but uh, could you make one of these? (laughs) And we had quite a lot of those kinds of across the pond discussions of, oh, is that what that is? Or I don't think we have those in the US or, you know, that that (laughs) kind of thing. like meal deals i don't think they have a boots meal deal over there (laughs) oh they're missing out (laughs) a fundamental experience (laughs) but yeah and and so those were really fun discussions or i i would end up sending a lot of like very 80s style sleeping bags through at a weird hour because i was like no it needs to look naff like this or (laughs) you know that kind of thing (laughs) What was your favourite plaque? Oh, gosh. I really like the short ones because the one that springs to mind is the zoetrope, which I just said was like the oldest format of perfectly looping GIF. (laughs) I like short things. I like it when I can get a point across in very few words. Mm -hmm. But it was nice to have a few of the things just sprawl over multiple exhibits as well. So the opposite. So the idea that for some reason in this version of humanity, leeches have become a linchpin of technology. That was a a nice thing to kind of explore. And also the reactions of the team of just, they've what now? (laughs) Like a leech powered pen. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to figure that out. (laughs) Yeah, it's just nice to play with the edges of what objects we have in the real world and then what might be completely fictional or what might be from an alternate timeline or, you know, all of those things really. Mm. When it came to writing the plaques and kind of deciding what language you were going to use and things like that, did you draw on your own experience either from studying art history or, you know, attending museums? Originally, the plaques were a lot more involved, actually. So the ones that are in the museum now, if memory serves, they are the name that the monsters have given to the thing. And the short description of what that thing was and its significance, you know, that kind of thing. It's been stripped right back. But when I first approached the project, one of the things that I was trying to lean into was using the types of information that a museum traditionally provides and having those as spaces for comedy so doing things with the date field or the media that the thing is made out of put a french horn in there which is broadly based on my own experience of 
leaving it on the bus a lot because I hated it so much. And I was like, <laughs> one day, one day, we're not going to get it back. <laughs> but knowing about that meant I knew that there was this horrible thing called a spit valve where that accumulates and you have to kind of empty it out every now and again. <laughs> so in the media, like that this thing is made of, it's, you know, it's brass and human spit, like and there's a measure of how much <laughs> spit there is, like 50 cc's or something. I can't remember exactly. <sighs> so I was sad to give those up, but for legibility, we, we really did have to. But yeah, it was nice to think about those spaces as other vectors for for jokes and also to sort of think about the frameworks that museums have to use, you know, the, the way that they catalogue these things, the way that this stuff is like recorded at so many different levels and broken down into all of these ways of finding it again, categorizing it, like cross-referencing it. So yeah, and trying to work out whether there was also anything that we would need to do in those spaces to address our own assumptions or biases and things. And that's actually why the objects are pretty much all based on this one site in England land, because that's where I felt able to try and draw from that almost like cartoonish version of England that I don't know that feels so much mine to make fun of in mm -hmm. some ways just because of growing up in yeah rural Kent I guess <laughs> so so what was it like to see the finished game because obviously the experience of writing it is you know it's very familiar you're in text documents working with text on you know on a white page and the game itself is a very different form what was it like to see it when it was done so because of the the way that team was so collaborative and and would iterate on things and i had a very good sense of what the final thing would look like because i'd played builds and i'd seen it being play tested and I'd mm. run through little things with Adam who I worked very closely with just to you know to have a kind of dialogue about oh well these are what the assets look like does that work for the joke that you're doing and so that side of things was actually pretty familiar quite early on in the project it's strange because the game came out during the height of the pandemic and We'd had to cancel our pre-release trip to that year's GDC and all of the opportunities to show it off at festivals weren't available. And, and so in some ways, it actually still doesn't feel like the game has come out because I have never attended an event where it was present in that form I've never like the the closest I've got is watching people play through it on YouTube or on Twitch and things like that but when it got reviewed places so Eurogamer they were so lovely about it, it was such a good review and the Steam reviews are positive and you know so those things were the things that started to make a dent in that oh this is real this is a thing that we did and that is reaching people and seems to be popular and stuff and I you know I knew that the puzzles were really strong but it was a joy for me to see people get the jokes because you kind of you never are sure are you <laughs> you're kind of always like well 
here goes nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, that's been that's been really lovely, actually, is seeing people understand what I was getting at, I guess, especially because part of it is, and this kind of harks back to one of your previous questions about how I approach the writing. Some of it is actually just how I see the world or like how I've naturally interpreted a thing or taken it to a weird conclusion. And and so there was a little vulnerability there. Like the longer you write, the more you think that you have distanced yourself or, you know, the kernel of yourself that is included in the thing is you know on your terms or whatever but there is still that moment of oh no if mm-hmm. people don't get this what does it mean or you know any of those things so yeah that was a real joy and then hearing that my nephew had really enjoyed it like the puzzles and things because he's only little but like he'd enjoyed solving the puzzles with his dad no idea if he read any of the things but like (laughs) it was just so lovely that someone in my family had also played it because they're not really gamers so it's not like they're gonna be out there reading pc gamer or rps right so (laughs) that was really nice obviously dracnex previous games haven't really had a lot of writing in them so this is quite a change for them what do you think it adds to this game because it's the same kind of form the puzzles and everything but with this addition of the writing on top i think the size of this game meant that it was always going to be really useful for players to have moments of relief in between puzzles And maybe that's not true of all puzzle solvers, but I definitely, if I'm playing something and it's puzzle after puzzle after puzzle, I can get really burnt out on that. And I think that some of that relief comes from the animations, like being able to sit on the side of an island and dangle your feet and listen to Ellie's lovely music or have a little swig of of coffee or some popcorn and things. But I think that the objects they they both give you something to aim for and a, and a way to navigate you're like oh i, I want to see what that is or even just oh i have oriented myself to this thing and, and i'm using it as a as a, a way marker for mm. for where i'm heading to in this next few moments but also it just gave a real point to the moments in between puzzles where the person could sit and think oh that survived or oh okay that's how these monsters have understood this shape that I'm incredibly familiar with or (laughs) or these are the bits of human lore that survived through time and have been recontextualized I hope at least that that was part of it and also just humor I guess you know because otherwise games can sometimes end up quite I don't quite know how to to say it but the worst thing for me is when somebody sees something that I've done in that vein and thinks it's twee Mm. like the thing that I wanted was to make sure that it had like just little claws but like there were a few things that weren't quite not easy even but just that it wasn't cloying I guess and I think that might have been an easy trap to fall into but yeah I think that maybe helped give some texture to 
the experience that is supported by the fact that puzzles can sometimes be really hard and really <laughs> sort of resist you, you know? <laughs> I feel like puzzle games aren't discussed as much as other genres. I don't know if this is just me or if you feel this way as well, but I kind of get the sense that they're underappreciated. Is it that players don't appreciate them as much, do you think, or just critics don't really write about them? So my knee-jerk reaction is that as somebody who likes puzzle games but knows what you mean Mm. and has been in a position to write about them from that critic point of view... I think it's very hard to find things to say about puzzle games that aren't essentially the puzzles are good or the puzzles are bad or if you like puzzle games, you will like this puzzle game. Mm -hmm. Because they hinge on being able to coax you into having moments of feeling brilliant and that (laughs) sort of, that pattern of frustration and then flow and then... And so that's a thing that is, I think it's very hard to describe to other people through writing. And if you're doing it in video, then it can essentially just become the other person has seen the solution and you Mm. haven't or vice versa. And, And I think it's a very hard thing to convey because it's so internal and relies on things that are happening without your express conscious understanding you have that moment of realization you do it and then it's kind of away from you before you've even fully articulated it and also there is a massive history of people talking about stories and having better vocabulary for them and then you know it is a different way of speaking about games that isn't the hero's journey or the narrative or Mm. the this and the that so So I think that's part of it. And then I also just think that something about puzzle games tickles some people's brains in a wonderful way that they love and seek out. And for other people, it's the worst thing in the world or the frustration is the overwhelming experience or Mm. the, you know, that the balance of frustration and delight isn't right for wanting to carry on doing that. And so isn't there that genetic thing where coriander either tastes soapy or lovely? Yes, coriander, the worst (laughs) thing on the planet, as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) I I do wonder if there's just a particular, almost like a, a brain vocabulary that either triggers in people or doesn't. And so you either do like them and enjoy them and seek them out, or you just have no interest. So... I feel like all of those bits come together. Mm. And so puzzle games is this bubble almost of people who are sort of really into them and maybe will nudge you and say, hey, have you heard about this new thing by this person, <laughs> you know, or, or you've accidentally stumbled into puzzle discords or, or you know, it's this, this sort of secret world almost where it's niche. And as soon as you make those connections, you start finding more things. Or if the algorithm finds you, mm. you'll have all of these recommendations piling up but generally they aren't going to be the the triple a releases they're not going to be like the header of you know an e3 show or whatever and so it's this really widespread but always feels quite niche thing yeah (laughs) and that makes me wonder because that happens in other areas as well is it a gendered thing to some extent 
because I feel like women love puzzle games. So I would probably be interested in just sort of sitting down and digging into whether there's been any research. My instinctive reaction is that it's probably influenced by the types of puzzle games because there are things like hidden object games which are one specific type of puzzle that is largely marketed to enjoyed by and then you know like there's this reinforcing loop by women Mm. and in in a more casual in air quotes space whereas there are more like maths-based or logic-based puzzles that then might fall into the category of stuff that boys get pushed towards or maybe more specifically that women get pushed away from Mm. at a younger age but only as part of how you know there's the gender gap in terms of who is again in air quotes allowed to be interested in stem subjects Mm. so yeah i think there's probably a lot of societal framework stuff at play there and i have definitely experienced that stuff both in terms of playing a lot of things like hidden object games or candy crush or you know those kinds of that strata of puzzles where it hasn't been taken seriously by male colleagues or that seems to be pushed far more towards women or consumed by women and then there's yeah like the stuff that is billed as more hardcore and Mm -hmm. more logic oriented and that seems to be a far more like male dominated space but again i should say i'm only speaking from my own experience when it comes to writing for puzzle games then as opposed to writing about them what are the kind of unique challenges there compared to other genres Oh, it's so weird because I haven't really had like this huge breadth of experience of writing for different kinds of genres. I'd edited Dicey Dungeons before that, and then I've worked on a few projects since. But that was my entree into the the world of having accredited writing thing in a game. The big thing with that project was the writing, the world building, the idea of these characters and who they were and what they were doing needed not to disrupt existing work and needed not to get in the way of the puzzles. So it sort of had to fit the flow of that stuff. And so in this specific example, because it was one of its functions was to break up the puzzles or to give people these moments of relief. They had to work as standalone texts, even though they were anchored to this broader world or this sense of a curator that was offering a nice day out for a monster. And so (laughs) people could have approached the flow through a bunch of the puzzles different ways so so they weren't necessarily going to encounter them in a specific order so it couldn't be telling a linear story that you needed Mm. to encounter that way and then because of the way that Alan works in terms of implementing the puzzles and tweaking things and figuring out like what's the best experience for the player from from that side of things they needed to be able to be moved around at a moment's notice Mm -hmm. and there needed to be some big things that were occupying broader more wide open spaces and there needed to be smaller things and so 
it was essentially far more about coming up with almost like this library of things that worked out of context or out of order at very least and that could be reshuffled at a moment's notice to suit the demands of the puzzles and things. So it was the big thing there, rather than having a start point and an end point of a narrative or any like progression in terms of like a story unfurling. It had to be just almost like offering a kaleidoscope to people where they could just look at each of the individual facets and see the same world through those things, this like coherent imagined past for humanity but it didn't matter which one they happened to see first almost Mm. whereas some of the things that I'm working on at the moment one of the ones that's been announced is uh, Little Kitty Big City you know the, the cat has a thing to do like there is an overarching purpose right so yeah so we've talked about the kind of humor in these captions and this is one of the things that reviews have highlighted as well From your years of writing about video games, presumably you have come across people saying how difficult it is to make video games funny. Why do you think that is? I think it depends. I think a lot of the humour that people are used to creating for each other, if they aren't professional writers or if it's not a genre that they naturally work in, is stuff that relies on ephemeral moments. It relies on maybe you're interacting with your friends and you know the things that make them laugh or you know the timings of a thing that will make a a moment funny. And when you realise that you're trying to do that for strangers who might be approaching this thing from any mood at the end of their day or with any company. I think that maybe goes some way towards explaining some of the difficulties where somebody who maybe thinks that they are funny because they can make people laugh in those settings, like those familiar settings, is suddenly like, how do I do this cold? You know, or how do I do this for someone on the other side of the world or via a medium that if I'm not working like hand in hand closely with the animation people or the visual people won't have the right timing for the payoff or won't have the right visual support for the thing to land. Like it's, it has to be in flow with all of those things and connect to somebody that you've never met and don't know. (laughs) And there are things that like, you know, maybe a, a cat knocking someone over. That's great. You know, that seems on the internet to have universal currency. <laughs> but having a, the timing of a glance, you know, or like knowing that this thing would make someone laugh in your circle. But, you know, like you have to have such a strong grasp of what people's shared reference points might be or what is actually really zeitgeisty or really local to you versus what would translate or what they might have picked up from elsewhere in the game or yeah do you think it's easier in a puzzle game like this then to make people laugh so the plaques and things they're basically almost like cracker jokes right like christmas crackers (laughs) and so they have to just be a thing that somebody reads and that has 
a little setup and a payoff. So that's a real exercise in compressing information into these spaces. So it's its own discipline, but it's also a very different thing from taking into account physical comedy or taking into account what a player who can move around while they're reading Mm. might take from these things like i don't know in mass effect or something when you're reading some very serious dialogue but jumping on a bed or something you know it's like (laughs) would that then undercut how these things are perceived or yeah so it didn't add those extra complexities basically Mm. and and i could concentrate on is this piece of writing funny and obviously there was the visual component that needed to work but i wasn't having to figure out timings or you know animations that would go along with it or you know anything like that so yeah i would say in that way it was it was kind of the ideal way for me to work for sure A Monsters Expedition Through Puzzling Exhibitions is available on PC, iOS and Switch and it's a great way to while away some time this festive season. If you want to follow progress on Pip's other projects like Little Kitty Big City, you can follow her on Twitter at P-H-I-L-I-P-P-A-W-A-R-R. I'm at Jerrica Weber and the podcast is at Talking Simpod. If you'd like to tell us about your favorite underappreciated genre of video game, send us an email at talkingsimulatorpod at gmail.com. And if you just want to say you like the show, why not leave a review on Apple Podcasts? Our music is by Jazz Mickle. You can find her at J-A-Z-Z-M-I-C-K-L-E. Talking Simulator is mixed by Lemmington's loveliest audio person, Dan Parks. If you need to make something sound good, you can find him at Dan C. P-A-R-K-E-S. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. Talk again soon. I mentioned what I did for a living at the hairdresser the other day and we almost immediately started then talking about Fortnite. (laughs) So, you know...